soy isoflavones do attach to estrogen receptors, but then the research didn't turn out to show a higher risk of breast cancer. It showed a substantially lower risk of breast cancer with soy consumers. Carbohydrate, it's the fuel for your body. Your whole body, all your cells, they run on glucose, and that's a good thing. The problem is that their cells are now insulin resistant and, can, and they can't take that fuel in anymore. Eat a ham sandwich, so the fat from the ham, the fat from the cheese and the mayo gets inside your liver cells, and then the liver cells can't respond to insulin either. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I am very, very excited about today's episode. A major goal with me for this show is bringing on all different perspectives. I honestly really feel like the only way we can find truth is if we listen to anything and everything, because if we just get in an echo chamber, then it's super easy, I think, to get trapped in our own biases and not be open to new information that may help us further find truth. I have a lot of low carb and carnivore and keto episodes on this show, so today's episode is on the other side of the dietary spectrum, all things veganism. I was so, so excited when Dr. Neil Bernard's people reached out to me for him to be on the show. Really honored because he really is a legend in the vegan sphere. So I cannot wait for you guys to listen to this and let me know what you think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash neilbernard, N-E-A-L-B-A-R-N-A-R-D. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then also check out my Instagram, find the announcement post there to again enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just wanna break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Neil Bernard. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So as you guys know, a lot of you guys follow a ketogenic diet or an animal-inclusive diet. I do know I have a lot of plant-based listeners as well, but I definitely feel like with the history of the episodes, there's been less episodes focusing on primarily plant-based diets when it comes to health. So I was super, super excited when honestly a legend in the plant based sphere, Dr. Neil Bernard, his people came to me because he had published a new study called the Women's Study for the Alleviation of Vasomotor Symptoms, a randomized controlled trial of a plant-based diet and whole soybeans for postmenopausal women. Wanting to talk about that study as well as the rest of his work, I was so excited when I got that email because I've been a follower of Dr. Bernard for years, years, years. I'm I'm sure many of you are very familiar with him. I mean, he is all over the place. He's published so many books. The ones I read most recently were Your Body in Balance and The Cheese Trap. He's published numerous studies, over 90 scientific publications. He's the president of the Physicians Committee. His research has played a huge role in the acceptance of plant-based diets and the Dietary Guidelines for America. His resume just goes on and on, so I'll put more of it in the show notes, but I'm really excited. I, I have so many questions about all of his work, and I'm really excited to expose it to more of my audience. So, Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for including me. So to start things off, I have so many questions for you, but what brought you to the plant-based world? Were you following it growing up? Did you have an epiphany one day? What led to what you're doing now? Yeah, I grew up in North Dakota. I don't know if you've ever been to Fargo, but if not, maybe you saw the movie and that's where I grew up. Fargo is a town in Eastern North Dakota and 
If you get on the highway, like going out of town, you will see agricultural fields all planted with GMO crops that are fed to cattle. All the corn, all the soybeans, everything you see is cattle feed, hog feed, chicken feed. My dad grew up in the cattle business and his dad grew up in the cattle business and everybody kind of as far back as I can trace that was the thing. And my uncles and cousins continued long after my father got sick of it and left. My dad didn't like raising cattle. And so he actually quit the business and he went to medical school and became the diabetes expert for Fargo, North Dakota. And so he took out a very different path, but we still ate like we were in the cattle business. And my first job was at McDonald's. I didn't see anything wrong with any of this, but the year before I went to medical school, I was working in a hospital basement in Minneapolis. When somebody died in the hospital, they would get sent to the morgue, which is where I worked. And I would help the pathologist to examine the bodies. He was the pathologist. I was the guy who weighed things or took notes and cleaned up afterward. And uh, he knew that I was going to go to medical school the following year. And so the, the pathologist would give me elaborate medical lectures over these bodies. And one day we had a guy who died in the hospital of a massive heart attack, probably from eating hospital food, but that's another issue. So anyway, the pathologist wanted to expose the heart. And you don't do this with great delicacy. You take a what's like a garden clipper and cut through the ribs on one side and then you hack through the ribs on the other side and you pull this big wedge of ribs off the chest and there it is the heart with effectively a big bruise on it because that's a myocardial infarction and so he sliced open a coronary artery giving me a lecture all the way about what we would see and the coronary arteries were not supple flexible arteries i could feel it and it felt like concrete, like a, like a pipe stem in parts. And he said, that's calcification. And we looked in the arteries to the, the, the carotid arteries going to the brain, same story. Anyway, at the end of the exam, he wrote up all the findings and he along the way pointed out that this was bacon and eggs that contributed to this. And this person had systemic atherosclerosis. So he left and I had to clean the body up. And so I took the organs and put them in the body cavity and I put the ribs back in the chest and tried to make them fit with the other ribs and, and sewed up the skin. And when I was done, it was way after lunchtime. So I, I went up to the cafeteria to say, what do you have left? And they had a serving of ribs there. And I want to tell you, I didn't become a vegetarian on the spot, but it smelled like the body that I was working on. And it looked like it. And it hit me. That is a body. And I, I just couldn't eat it. And so as time went on, I started to think more about the connections between what we put in our mouth, what we consider food, what we don't consider food. And then, of course, you start learning about the effects these have on our bodies and the lies we tell ourselves about the business our family is in or the things that we need and so forth. And much, much later, we started doing randomized clinical trials of various kinds of diets, which is certainly enough to seal the deal. But now I follow exactly the opposite diet of the way I grew up. I don't eat meat or animal products whatsoever. And I follow a, a vegan diet and uh, as clean a vegan diet as I, as I can. Wow. McDonald's and morgues. <laughs> that is quite the background. One of the things I'm really, really fascinated by is how it seemingly different diets that are polar opposite extremes. So like a low-carb keto diet on one side and then a plant-based vegan diet, low-fat on the other side, seemingly 
can work for different people as long as they exist potentially within that extreme. So for example, you're talking about the like the stiffening of the arteries and the calcification. Is that something where a person could be like on a low carb, high fat diet and have high cholesterol, but not have stiffening and calcification? And if so, like, what are the implications of that? Or is it a situation where, no, you know, if you have this cholesterol situation, there is damage being happening? Like, how important is the context beyond just one marker like cholesterol? After we started to, when Atkins became popular, it was an attractive thing because you could eat gravy and lose weight. And of course, the reason for that isn't that gravy is a slimming food and meat is not a slimming food. Protein doesn't cause weight loss. What happened, the the reason people lose weight is that carbohydrate is 50 or 60% of what you eat normally. Um, And in many parts of the world, it's much more than that. And if you take all that out of your diet, you're going to lose weight. And so when he became popular and we were alarmed by some people having cardiovascular problems as a result, we got a phone call from a man named Jody Garan who said that he had wanted to lose just a little bit of weight, you know, just a few pounds, but Atkins was a popular way to go. And so he, he went on this diet and his cholesterol went way, way up. And he was reassured by a keto believer that you don't, you can ignore cholesterol. It's all a myth. And one day he's walking down the street and the proverbial elephant sat on his chest. He had crushing chest pain. And of course he was having an infarction and cholesterol is a real thing. And so he had had, as fate would have it, he he contacted us because he had a totally clean stand before he went on the Atkins diet. He was a reasonably, he wasn't terribly overweight and he had a clean heart scan, so far as anyone could tell, didn't have calcifications. And if you just take a great ape, a human being, and you start feeding them like a cat, which is you pretend they're a carnivore, some people can handle that cholesterol and so forth, but many cannot. And so cholesterol, LDL cholesterol levels, bad cholesterol levels vary widely with low carbohydrate diets. Normally, any kind of weight loss is going to cause cholesterol to fall. That's just what happens. But the exception is ketogenic diets, low low carbohydrate diets. Sometimes they fall because you lose weight, but sometimes they increase wildly. And that's what happened in his case. So we never use ketogenic diets at all. And I know I'm upsetting some of your listeners by saying this, but, but the, the fact of the matter is I, I, I think it's, it's antithetical to what our bodies really are built for. And, and it doesn't surprise me that some people do it very badly with them. Do you think there's a difference between a person on a low-carb diet versus a low-carb, high-fat diet? Because in theory, one could practice a low-carb diet without it necessarily being high-fat. Well, keep, keep in mind what carbohydrate is your, it's the fuel for your body. It's not a bad thing. Ever since the 50s, people have imagined rice makes you heavy or something like that. And these are people who have never been to Japan, where you know, there's a whole lot of skinny people eating phenomenal amounts of rice. Your, your body is designed, your muscles are designed to run on carbohydrate. That is your gasoline. Your brain runs on carbohydrate. Your whole body, all your cells, they run on glucose, and that's a good thing. And so you take any runner from the most amateurish runner to the most, the best runner in the world, their muscles really want carbohydrate. Now, you can run on other fields too, but carbohydrate is, is what you, you run on. And where we run into trouble, of course, in, say, the diabetes work that we do, 
and blood sugars are going up and then people become afraid of carbohydrate. The carbohydrate is not the problem. The problem is that their cells are now insulin resistant and can and they can't take that fuel in anymore. The carbohydrate was never the problem. But um, it, it's funny, when a person has become a bit insulin resistant, they could go and eat a little organic apple and all that healthy glucose in there builds up in the blood because it can't go into their muscle cells where it should go. And they think, gee, I guess apples are poison. No, there's nothing wrong with the apple. There's something wrong with your cells that they can't take in the glucose. And we now know what that is and we can remedy that so you can enjoy an apple or two or a bunch of grapes or some spaghetti or, or these normal healthy foods. My listeners are always pretty surprised. I think they think that I probably follow a keto diet, but I actually follow a very high carb, very low fat, but it's high protein diet. So I eat lean animal proteins and tons and tons of fruit. And I tend to practice intermittent fasting. I do that because I personally have found that if I exist in either of those extremes that I just mentioned, so either a low fat diet or a low carb diet seems to create a state of insulin sensitivity because there's not that fuel competition between the fats and the carbs, which brings me to my, my second question about what you were just talking about. What is the difference in a way between, so if a person is following a high carb, low fat diet, then presumably if they bring in you know, some fat to that diet, that could very quickly probably create a problem because they're, they're running on glucose. And now, you know, that fat is most likely going to be stored, could create some metabolic issues. On the flip side, if a person's following a low carb, high fat diet, they could in theory be having a lot of fat because that's the, the metabolism they're running on. But then if they bring in just a little bit of carbs, then it might create the same types of issues. So my question is, what are your thoughts on that concept, like, is it just the carbs or just the fats, or is it the context of them both together? Here's how people destroy their bodies. You're born with a pancreas. It's right behind your belly button. And it has a really important job. It makes insulin. And the insulin is the key that goes through the bloodstream to the surface of each muscle cell. And its job is to help the sugar that is in the various foods you eat to get inside your muscle cells. Your muscles are really particular. They don't just let sugar in willy-nilly. They, they got to have the insulin to let it in. And as time goes on, because we're, we live in a rich country or a country where really fatty stuff is available, people eat cheese and bacon and chicken and other fatty foods and, and fry or grease, vegetable fats too. And those particles of fat, bit by bit, will get stored inside your muscle cells. I don't mean fat on your thighs or on your belly. I mean some of that fat gets inside your muscles, the muscle cells themselves. Now, different people store them at different rates. But as that builds up, the insulin doesn't work anymore. And that's insulin resistance. And it's caused by the buildup of fat inside muscle cells, which we call intramyocellular lipid. The same thing happens in the liver. You eat a ham sandwich, so the fat from the ham, the fat from, fat from the cheese and the mayo gets inside your liver cells. And then the liver cells can't respond to insulin either. It's like taking a key and trying to get into your front door when the, the lock is jammed with chewing gum or something. You don't have chewing gum in your cells, but you got fat. So then you go to the doctor and you say, gee, you know, everything I eat makes my blood sugar rise. 
And the doctor says, I don't know why, but I guess I wouldn't eat sugar if I were you. And you read a book that says that sugar is terrible and, and you can't eat carbohydrate. And you discover that when you avoid carbohydrate, your blood sugar indeed falls. And so for the rest of your life, you imagine that, that carbohydrate is the devil. And nobody ever used the word intramyocellular lipid. And so if you come into our research center and I'll say, there's nothing wrong with an apple or a piece of toast or some brown rice. What's wrong is the, the fact that your cell can't pull the sugar out and use it. So I'm going to put you on a vegan diet. There's no animal fat in that. I'm going to keep oils really low. And if I stuck you in an MR scanner and I could track the amount of fat that's inside your muscle cells, it gradually diminishes. And so then you discover that you can eat sugar and you can eat carbohydrate and it, it'll now work for you and you'll, and you'll be okay. So the problem wasn't some metabolic switch, which people talk, talk about. The problem is that your cells got all jammed up with fat. And so the rest of your life, you're afraid of carbohydrate. The, the converse is not true. If a person has been on a very low fat plant-based diet and they eat some fat, nothing's going to happen. If it's little bits here or there, they go out and have some guacamole, nothing happens. But on the other hand, if you decide you want to indulge in lots of fatty stuff, which nature didn't have in mind for you, then you can become insulin resistant too. What do you think about like endurance trained athletes who have high amounts of intramuscular triglycerides, but they're still insulin sensitive. What's going on there? Who knows? It, it is the paradox that we do see in people who, it's not me and it's not the people who come into our clinic, but there are people who can accumulate fat inside their muscle cells and still remain insulin sensitive. It has something to do with, with their body's adaptation to extreme exercise. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I just ponder that and I wonder how similar that scenario is maybe to people 
who seem to be similarly insulin sensitive while having intramuscular triglycerides. But the, the, the real key, though, I think, is to, to remember the simple picture and the big picture. We've got most of the population is overweight. These are not vegans. What, 60% of the population, 70% of the population? These are people who have been eating meat and cheese and oily foods and all kinds of stuff. And then when they're trying to lose weight, they do things they've heard, like don't eat, you know, try to eat a smaller portion of the same stuff or leave out carbohydrate. And if instead of doing that, we eat the foods that our bodies are designed for, and it's simple fruits, four groups, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, meaning beans and lentils. And if they keep the oils out and the animal products out, they're going to slim down, their diabetes will improve, their blood pressure will improve, their digestion will improve, their cancer risk will, will fall. Well, I do want to thank you because the work you're doing is profound. And I think you you mentioned this already and I've mentioned it. I think there's a massive, massive fear of carbohydrates, especially people, I think they fall into the low carb keto world and they think it's the only way and they get this demonization of carbs. And for me personally, I think the focus on whole foods is just so important. That's something that I really get reading all of your work. Uh, a random binary question or comparison question I wanted to ask you was, because a lot of people go vegan, but there are a lot of you know processed vegan foods now. And you talk about the potential issues of added oils and fats and things like that. So not that it's a comparison we have to make, but if you had to choose between a vegan diet, but that's high in you know, oils and processed vegan compared to a whole foods, low fat, animal inclusive diet, like metabolically, do you think one would be better than the other? Keep in mind, there are sometimes people who try to pick on vegan diets. I don't mean you're doing this, but this is where I usually hear this kind of question raised is they'll say there's vegan junk food out there. And they're trying to somehow blame the industry that's managed to simulate ice cream with a vegan version made from almonds or something like that. The fact of the matter is junk food is there in everybody's diet. I mean, I don't mean you or me, but... Keto too. There's keto junk foods. When I was growing up in North Dakota, I didn't know a vegetarian or a vegan, never heard of any of it. But there were potato chips and there was ice cream and there was licorice and there was all kinds of, of stuff and candy and pork rinds and slim gems, you know, and and then when we got convenience stores, which we didn't have when I was little, when convenience stores came in, they had Slim Jims and cheese, string cheese and all this kind of stuff. And so when a person becomes vegan, they are they have eliminated products of animal origin. That's a good step. And then if they are still eating the potato chips or Twizzlers or whatever, they've got some other steps that they might want to take. But meat eaters are eating those things, too. So, so in, in other words, I wouldn't denigrate a vegan diet be, because there are lots of other things that are wrong with the diet. But I'll tell you a funny story. Years ago, 2005, we published a paper in the American Journal of Medicine. We wanted to help women who had postmenopausal weight gain. We brought in 64 women. They'd all done Atkins, South Beach, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, everything. They'd all lost weight, felt great, either couldn't stick with it or it didn't stick with them. And they ended up heavier than ever. So we gave them just two rules. The rules were no animal products and keep oils really low. And when we do research studies, we do what I encourage everybody to do, which is to get together as a group every week and compare notes and see how we're doing. And because you'll have problems with the diet, you know, here and there, like I got invited to a wedding. What do I do? So you want to sort things out. Week three of the study, one of the women said, Dr. Barnett, I found a 
snack that fits in with your vegan diet. And I thought, what is it? She said, it's Twizzlers. And she pulled Twizzlers out of her purse. And, you know, you know, if, you know these red twisty things they sell at the 7-Eleven, the red licorice. And she was right. The rules of the study were no animal products and no added oils. And if you look at Twizzlers, it's just sugary, starchy, artificially colored junk. And she made sure that all of the research participants knew that you can eat unlimited Twizzlers in Dr. Barnard's research study, which was not the intention. Nonetheless, our low-fat vegan Twizzler-fueled research participants still lost about a pound per week, and their weight at two years was still below baseline, so it never came back. So my, my, my point is that the, this is not health food, but if a person only eliminates animal products, if that's all they do, that's a huge and very good step. And if in addition to that, they realize that oily junk isn't doesn't really love you back either. That's getting rid of that's an important step too. And beyond that, then it's good to think about what are the healthy foods? So like you were saying earlier, apples and oranges and pears and bananas, you know, those are really healthy foods that our bodies really are designed for and candy and junk really, you know, not so good. Well, speaking of that study, perhaps that's a nice segue into your newest study, which So I already mentioned it, but it's the women's study for the alleviation of vasomotor symptoms, a randomized controlled trial of a plant-based diet and whole soybeans for postmenopausal women. So I read it and I went deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole researching soy and equal and so many factors. And I changed my mind on a lot of things because prior to researching all this with your work, I think I was subscribing to the general idea of no soy ever (laughs) Um, because there's definitely a vibe about soy in the low carb world that it, you know, possibly creates hormonal issues or is related to cancer, things like that. So I've learned a lot and I have a lot of questions for you. I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about the setup of the study and what you found with it. Sure. Menopause is a normal phase of life. It happens to everybody. And and if you had to design the human body, menopause is kind of a good thing. I mean, it's it's nature's way of saying you're 52. You don't want to have a toddler on your kitchen floor right now. Factory's closed. The problem is that for some women, they sail through it really well, but for some women, they have pretty bad hot flashes. So you're sitting in the board of directors meeting, it's 2.30 in the afternoon, and all of a sudden it's 150 degrees and it's the middle of the night and the same thing happens and you're soaked with sweat and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, got a treatment for you. It's called HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Great. I go to the drugstore and I fill my prescription and they give me a product information sheet that has the word cancer on it and blood clots and myocardial infarction and (laughs) dementia, all these side effects of the drug the doctor just prescribed for me. So it puts women in a in a really tough spot. They get ignored. They get belittled. They are told you're old, you're past your cell by date. This is all complete and utter nonsense and abusive. So our research team started looking at the the research on this. And the first thing, if you look at Japan in the post-World War II period, fairly impoverished country, just lost the war, eating huge amounts of rice, some soybeans, some vegetables, and not much in the way of animal products, some fish, not much meat, no dairy. They had very few hot flashes. Maybe 15% of women had them. They were quite mild. They didn't even have a word for them. But then when Japanese... The Japanese diet westernized and the golden arches set up. 
in say the 1990s, early 2000s, hot flashes became much more common as did diabetes and weight problems and cardiovascular disease. And in other countries, you started to see a pattern where plant-based diets were healthy in many ways, but one of the associations was very little hot flashes. The other, so the first thing is just something about plants helps. But the other thing is the Japanese diet, like Asian diets in general, makes abundant use of soy. And the soy isoflavones, like daidzine and genistein, are credited with part of, that's part of the reason Japanese women have so little breast cancer, or did historically, because isoflavones reduce cancer risk. And I'm sure we'll want to talk more about that, because that will surprise people to hear. But they also seem to be helpful against hot flashes. And in 2016, there was a nice meta-analysis in JAMA that's suggesting some kind of modest effect. So anyway, I wrote about this in a book called Your Body and Balance, which you kindly mentioned earlier. And it talks about hormone, how you can control all kinds of hormones, thyroid hormone and testosterone and estrogens and so forth. I mentioned how menopausal hot flashes could be improved by a diet that is both plant-based and rich in soy. And I got a, a, a woman contacted me and her name was Betty. She said, Dr. Barnard, I read your body in balance. I went straight to the menopause chapter and my hot flashes were gone in, in just a couple of days, like I think five days. And that really surprised me because I thought the diet change would, would help. I thought going vegan and adding soy would help, but I didn't think it would help that quickly. So she said, no, for real. So I said, tell me exactly how you did this. She said, totally vegan, no added fat. And I went to, to Amazon and I bought some soybeans. I said, what brand? She said, Laura brand non-GMO soybeans. How did you cook them? I bought an Instant Pot. I put them in. I then apportioned them into half cup portions every day. I wrote down all every detail of how she knocked her hot flashes out so fast. So after I hung up the phone, I ran into the office of my research director. And I said, we got to do a trial. And so we brought in women who had hot flashes. And we did exactly Betty's diet. So half the women... I gave them Instant Pots. I gave them Laura Brand soybeans. We made them vegan, low-fat. And we had a control group. And it was true. We knocked out the moderate to severe hot flashes by 84%. And what I think, well, okay, what do we know versus what we think? Because I think we've got to be modest about what we're sure about. What we know is that hot flashes improve. They improve a lot. And if a person has been vegan and on a really clean diet, when they add the soybeans, it, for some people, is like a bazooka against their hot flashes. They just go bang, like three, four days, they're gone. What we think is happening is that the soy isoflavones are a good force against hot flashes. But one of these isoflavones is called daidzine, D-A-I-D-Z-E-I-N, daidzine. There are others like genistein. But the daidzine, when it's in your digestive tract, if you have been on a plant-based diet, it looks like that causes healthy gut bacteria to be able to convert that daidzine into another compound called Equal, E-Q-U-O-L. And the Equal goes into your bloodstream, and it's this seems to be what is more powerful against hot flashes. So what we think but can't yet prove is that you need all these three things together, vegan and low-fat and the soybeans, and that that combination together gives you this healthy gut bacteria that can convert the isoflavones into their most medicinal form. And what do you get? You get rid of your hot flashes. You are now on a diet that is going to reduce your risk of cancer. And by, by the way, the average woman lost about eight pounds. So it was, it was absolutely life-changing for these women. And for anyone who wants to see the women and hear what they have to say, if you go to our website, pcrm.org, 
and search the wave study WAVS or hot flashes, you'll see the women describing what they did and, and how it helped them. Question about the setup of the study. Since there wasn't a third arm of people on a vegan diet without the soy, how do you know what you can contribute to the soy compared to just the vegan diet in general? And if you did it again with a third arm, like, do you think you would see more benefits from the soy compared to not having the soy? We did have some women who were vegan going into it. They were already avoiding animal products, some for quite a long period of time. And when they added the soy, they did they did better. Oh, really? Yeah, they did. But but on the other hand, I think you're raising a really cool question. There, there is some um, in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. You fly down to Cancun, get your Hertz rental car, drive two hours west. You'll be in a town called Valladolid. And researchers went down there and they interviewed more than 100 Mayan women. And they, they didn't have hot, flash, hot flashes at all. But what do they eat? They don't eat rice. In, in Japan, the grain is rice. In the Yucatan Peninsula, it is corn. And they don't eat soybeans. Their bean is the black bean. And they eat lechaya, which is a, a, a plant. It's a, a green vegetable. And so it's, it's not a soy diet, but it's a plant-based diet. And so I think your question is a good one. Could people who are on plant-based diets, that, but they don't bother with soy, could they do better? My guess is probably so. But we had some women in our study who were already vegan, and the, the addition of soy seemed to help. Who knows? It, it's kind of like Dean Ornish's work. Dean Ornish did brilliant work where he took people who had pretty advanced cardiovascular disease, I mean, narrowed arteries, and he put them on a combination of a plant-based diet, no smoking, physical exercise, reduced stress, and their arteries started opening up, which is miraculous. On angiograms, you see their arteries effectively healing. And some people would, would criticize and say, well, was it the stress reduction? Was it the diet? And the answer is you don't know. You're testing a combination. And then if you wish to, you can try to tease apart which are the, which are the pieces that actually work. And for now, we, we don't have that answer. I'd be really interested to see that study conducted. And that's really good to know about the, the pre-existing vegan patients and how the soy affected it. Because you would think, like just hearing everything that you said and what I read, you would think if there was that third arm, that you probably would see a greater benefit with the soy-inclusive diet. But, you know, it could be a surprise. It could be that you saw the opposite, that there's actually a slightly better benefit without the soy. We just don't know. Well, soybeans are a funny bean. You know, if you send you know, black beans and pinto beans and other beans are really low in fat, they're high fiber. Soybeans have a little bit more fat in them. And, you know, you'll find traces of isoflavones in other beans, but soybeans are really rich in them. So it's kind of a unique bean. But uh, we're getting to know it. The, the one thing that I would mention is when Betty called me up and described her diet, when she said she used whole organic soybean or non-GMO whole soybeans, a light bulb went off in my head. Because if you go to a Japanese restaurant, they give you the bowl of edamame. Those are baby soybeans. They're in the pod, but they're juvenile. If you leave them on the vine a little longer, the isoflavones are elaborated into a higher degree. So you get more isoflavone in a half a cup of mature soybeans than you will in edamame. Or if you, if you take soy milk, it's got isoflavones too, but, but very diluted. You'd have to have two quarts of soy milk to get the isoflavones you get in a half a cup of, of say, mature soybeans. Yeah, I'd love to dive deeper into isoflavones as well as, I'm glad you said it because I knew I was pronouncing it wrong, equal. Maybe start with isoflavones. 
what are they? I know that's a very simple question, but what are they? What do they do in the body? How do they interact with our estrogen receptors? What's going on? First of all, I think we should once again acknowledge what do we know and what do we not know and what are we kind of unclear about? What we know is that this diet really works for, for women. And, and as time goes on, they can back off. They may decide, okay, I've been vegan, you know, and I've been taking the soy and my hot flashes have been gone now for four years. Maybe I don't need the soy anymore. And you can, you can kind of get away from it if you want. So we know it works, but, but then we're going to speculate as to why and what do these things do. Many, many years ago, when isoflavones were discovered, these are compounds that are, are natural to the soy. They're not sprayed on by the farmer. It's, it's a natural part of the soybean. And they will attach to estrogen receptors. And that frightened people or led some people to write frightening headlines, suggesting that if something can, can attach to an estrogen receptor and can then be called estrogenic, that it's going to somehow make you effeminate or might make a woman have cancer or might make a woman who had cancer make that cancer progress. And that's about as far as the thinking has then gone. And so people would say things that have turned out to be 180 degrees wrong, like a guy at the beach has got breast enhancement because he, you know, maybe it's because of isoflavin. You know what I'm talking about. What's the locker room word? Man boobs, man boobs. And and, and by, by the way, you, you will hear people say that man boobs are caused by soybeans. And, and you can rapidly disprove that by going to a beach on a hot August day. And if you see a guy peel off his T-shirt and he's a bit heavy set and he's got some breast enhancement, you can go right up to him and, and ask him how much tofu he's eaten this past week. And I guarantee you, he will look you in the eye and go, what are you talking about? I don't eat tofu. I eat burgers and fries and pizza and chicken and stuff like that. You know, I never had any tofu. What is it? The reason he has breast enhancement is because as he has gained weight, fat cells convert testosterone to estradiol. And he will then go to his doctor after 15 or 20 years of this, and the doctor will use a wonderful invented term of andropause and say, like menopause, but you're a guy, so you've got andropause, and I've got something I can sell you because I think you've got low T. And he may in fact have low testosterone. Nowhere in reading men's health or searching on the internet or in his doctor's office, will anyone explain to him that his own adipose tissue has enzymes that convert his own testosterone into estrogen? And away it goes. His testosterone is gone. The second contributor is that he is this man, like your average American adult, is eating 37 pounds of cheese every year and milk and milkshakes and ice cream and yogurt. All of these are milk products that came out of a cow. Every single cow that ever gave any milk to you at some point had a farmhand's left hand up her rectum. And that farmhand was busily grabbing her uterus, which he could feel through the rectal wall. And at the moment that he did that, he took his right hand and took what looks like a knitting needle and jammed it through the cow's cervix and inserted semen that he took from a bull. And at that moment, that cow is now impregnated. And nobody wants to talk about that, of course, but biologically, you've just set in motion something really important. You're going to continue to milk this cow while her body is responding to what you just did. Her body responds by creating estrogen. She was making it before. 
she's now pregnant. She's going to make more and more and more estrogen. And they keep milking her for most of her pregnancy. And you turn that milk into cheese. And Hank thinks cheese is a great thing. It's got calcium. It's got protein. And he is consuming estradiol in dairy products. Nobody told him that. There's no estradiol in the soybean. <laughs> there's genistein and daisine, but there's no estradiol. But there is estradiol in every dairy product you ever eat. So that's the, the first thing that has to be said is for some reason, I think it might be sort of American xenophobia where we pick on countries that have soy as their, you know, their traditional staple food. And we kind of ignore the estrogens, the, the, the actual estrogens that are in our own diets. But the fact of the matter is soy isoflavones do attach to estrogen receptors, but then the research didn't turn out to show a higher risk of breast cancer, it showed a substantially lower risk of breast cancer with soy consumers. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines, one of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. So when the isoflavones are attaching to those receptors, are they activating it? Are they blocking it? What are they telling the cell? Yeah, great, great question. And we're still groping around with a flashlight in the dark. The old-fashioned idea was kind of that, uh, th that a hormone would stimulate the receptor. But then we started to learn that they have estrogenic and anti-estrogenic effects. They, they do both. But then what really... I think changed the, the, the discussion was the discovery that there are two different categories of estrogen receptors. There are alpha receptors, and then there are beta receptors and estradiol that a woman's body makes or that a man's body makes, particularly if he's overweight. Estradiol attaches to both the alpha and the beta receptors. But the isoflavones attach preferentially to the beta receptors. And to put it in a kind of a simple-minded way, on the floor of your car, if you put your foot down, you're behind a wheel. You put your foot down really hard. Does your car go? Well, yeah. If you put your, if you put your foot down on the gas, depends what you hit. It depends. Yeah. If you hit the brake, it stops. So if you have a natural compound that attaches to the alpha receptor, as estradiol will, that probably will cause cancer progression. 
But if it goes to the beta receptor, probably not. So this is a little bit of a simple-minded way of putting it, but soy should be viewed as the break on cancer. And we have many, many studies now with a very consistent result showing that women who avoid soy have the highest breast cancer rates. Women who eat abundant soy have the lowest breast cancer rates. And we have, a few years ago, a study came up combining five prior trials with more than 11,000 women all had had breast cancer in the past, and then their diets were tracked. And the soy avoiders had the highest mortality. And the women consuming the most soy had about 25, maybe 30% reduced mortality. But I want to be a little humble about what we know because we saw reduced mortality in women who had previously had estrogen receptor negative cancers and estrogen receptor positive cancers, both ways, the soy seemed to help them. So it may be that soy is working its magic through the beta receptor, but it might be something completely different. But the thing that we do know pretty clearly is that the well-meaning but ill-informed doctor who says to the patient, you've been diagnosed with breast cancer, I would not touch soy if I were you. You just put, put that woman in the category of having uh, be at risk for 25 to 30% higher risk of cancer mortality, which coming back to our WAVE st study, here are women, they're going through menopause. You could put them on HRT. Out of every 25 women that go through a clinic and get a prescription for HRT, out of every 25 women who continue on that for 10 years or more, one of those 25 will get breast cancer that the doctor caused. If I say to her, let's go vegan, keep oils low, let's have soybeans every day. You've done the opposite. You've reduced their risk of breast cancer. So, and you've also helped her to, to lose weight, which is going to further reduce her risk of breast cancer. You've, these are also the very foods that are associated with reduced risk of, of Alzheimer's disease. I'm talking about plant-based, low-fat foods. Question about those stats on breast cancer and soy intake. Was that looking back at people who had cancer and looking at their pre-cancer soy consumption? Like, is there a difference between having a high soy diet preventatively for cancer compared to never having had soy, getting cancer, and then adding in soy? The best guess, keep in mind, none of these are done as randomized clinical trials. It's always observational trials. And so you have to be really cautious in what, in what, in what you're doing. Well, I, sh I shouldn't say there aren't any. I mean, there are studies that are randomized clinical trials. But this, this literature is really mostly observational. There are studies showing that more plant-based diets will reduce mortality in people who've had cancer in the past. But my, my best interpretation is that the earlier women have soy in their diet, the better the effect. So some have suggested that it might matter most when the breast cells are really maturing. I'm talking about when she's 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, something like that. But there is also evidence that diet changes, even after cancer diagnosis, do matter a lot. So I think we need to withhold judgment on that. Okay, gotcha. This is a sort of granular question, but would there be implications about a person's current estrogen burden and then when they have isoflavones? And what I mean by that is, so when the isoflavones attach to the receptors, are they blocking a docking station that 
the estrogens in their body would have been docking to? And if so, now where do those estrogens go? Do they get excreted? Do they redistribute to other estrogen receptors? Like, does the estrogen body burden play an effect in what happens when you have soy? Fascinating question. I don't think we know the answer. The, the way you described it is, is, is exactly what I would have said. Way back when, I kind of thought of it as a 747 is docking at O'Hare Airport. And the little jet bridge is coming out and, and that big 74, 747, that's like estradiol. It's this big, ugly looking estrogenic molecule that's going to cause cancer. And if instead the isoflavone lands, it's like a little private plane. It just arrives, but it occupies the same, the same jetway. So the, the 747 can't approach anymore. We, th- we thought of it that way, that the, the isoflavones are taking a place so that estradiol can't attach. I'm no longer sure that that's the mechanism, and I really am not sure what the actual mechanism is, but it's, it's reasonable to speculate. What we, what we do know now and what we're going to know for the foreseeable future is that there is no reason to avoid soy and probably every reason to take advantage of it. Now, now that said, you know, I'm not pushing it necessarily. It's, it's an optional food. It's very versatile. It's always healthier than what it replaces. I mean, if you have soy bacon versus bacon that came, came out of the backside of a pig, I mean, there is no contest. But people don't have to have soy if they are allergic or, or, or wish not to. Going back to the, the equal and, you know, that metabolite of soy produced by our gut bacteria, so you're talking about how people on plant-based diets seem to be able to produce more of that. Have there been studies on that or is it a situation, like do some people just naturally not have the gut bacteria that they need to produce equal and, and they're never going to have it and might mean that they're just not suited to the benefits of soy? Funny story, really. The original observation was that Asians could produce equal and Americans couldn't. In other words, a woman in Tokyo She's eating tofu or miso or whatever. And if you do a urine test, you find equal in her urine, which means that the soy, the, the daidzine in the soy was converted by her gut bacteria into equal and got into her blood. And then she's excreting it in her urine. You can measure. And so you go to Cincinnati and you notice that none of the women are making equal. And so what researchers then did, it sounds a little ridiculous today, but they would take a woman, an American woman, or, you know, a, a woman who's not making equal, feed her heroic amounts of soybeans and do it for day after day after day. I'm going to make you an equal producer. Just doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen. So the question was, well, it's got to be genetic. What they missed was, what is it that causes your gut bacteria to change? And what causes your gut bacteria to change is, is the soil that they're growing in. If you're eating a high fiber diet of vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans, that selects for healthy gut bacteria that can then produce equal. If you're eating chicken wings and fish and, you know, animal muscle tissue, that selects for a very different kind of gut bacteria. It's a little bit like you go to the garden store. These roses will not grow, just won't grow, doesn't happen. And the the person behind the desk says, well, show me the the soil that you're using. And I show him and he says, this is cactus soil. Who sold this to you? You know, you need need a whole different flower bed to grow roses than to grow cactus. And you can change your flower bed very rapidly. At the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Steve O'Keefe's group did an amazing study. They took American men eating, uh, let's face it, an American diet, you know, chicken wings and roast beef and the things that we eat. And they took a group of men from rural South Africa 
eating what men in rural South Africa eat, root vegetables and beans and a very high fiber, mostly plant-based diet. They switched diets. The men in Pittsburgh started eating a South African diet. And within two weeks time, you could see their gut bacteria changing to the kinds of gut bacteria that you could see in Africa. And the men in rural South Africa now eating Velveeta and <laughs> chicken wings and, and these kinds of things, their gut bacteria were changing too in exactly the wrong direction. And one of the most frightening things that I have seen is historically Japanese women, maybe 60% produce equal. In the United States, maybe 20% of Westerners produce equal. Japan is changing now. Japan is becoming more like Pittsburgh. They've got Burger King, they've got KFC, they've got all this stuff. They've got dairy. They didn't, didn't have dairy. It was not a cheesecake culture in 1940. They've got it now. And if you look at women athletes now in Japan, maybe 30% of them are making equal. They're on a less healthy diet. They're less healthy people. There's a lot more obesity and all these kinds of, of problems. What do you feel about the high equal content of dairy food? Who knows? we got to see. Do you think there would be potentially some benefit there or? Mm, well, keep in mind, what is, what is dairy? The number one nutrient in a glass of milk is sugar. Number two is fat. If it's low fat, then it's sugar and there's some protein in there and so forth. So cows do make all kinds of foods, uh, all kinds of products. They've got gut bacteria too. But keep in mind, dairy is a cocktail that's designed to overfeed an infant. Because you don't want that infant's diet, you don't want that inf infant's body. A calf's body is not supposed to stay the same size. You know, your body's supposed to stay the same size, and mine is, but not a calf. Dairy is designed to create rapid increase in body weight. And so, number one, sugar, number two, fat, number three, protein. And when you eat those things, it causes in your body IGF 1 levels to increase, not the IGF-1 in the milk. That's, that's there, but that's not the big thing. It just stimulates your body to make IGF-1. So your body grows. So to say that there could be some health benefit to this cocktail, milk, I think, is a wildly over, overly promoted and completely inappropriate food for humans. Yeah. Whenever listeners ask me about foods to cut out for weight loss, I, I say, well, the one food that's a hormonal food made to grow something, and it's also a cocktail of both sugar and fat together is dairy. <laughs> so, and I think a similar case, I don't know, well, nuts would be the other food where it's carbs and fat with the quote intention of growing something in high calorie. But I definitely think dairy is, it doesn't have that hormonal aspect of dairy. We were just talking about can we get back these bacteria that produce equal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. More research needs to be done, but researchers have looked at adults in Western countries. And you take your average Western, maybe one in five will produce an equal, something like that. But then if you say, wait a minute, here I am in Australia. Uh, researchers brought together 41 adults. If you look at the non-vegetarians, maybe a quarter of them produced equal, but if you look at the vegetarians, about 60% produced equal. Now, they weren't born that way. It's just a question of the gut bacteria that predominated at the time. So equal has nothing to—the the issue isn't whether you're eating soy or not. The issue is, are you eating foods that have helped you to have a healthy gut microbiome? And once you do, then if you consume soy, your body will take the daidzine and convert it to equal. Have you seen the um, the cell 2021 study, gut microbiota targeted diets, modulate human immune status? It put people on either a high fiber diet 
or a high fermented foods diet to see how it affected their gut microbiome. Did you see that one? No, I don't think I've been, I don't think I have. Okay. I will send it to you. I am so curious about your thoughts on it. So they had two groups and they put them on either a high fiber diet or like I just said, a high fermented foods diet. The high fiber diet, they did not add fermented foods and the high fermented foods diet did not add in fiber. And as far as like how did macronutrients and stuff like that change, interestingly, the high fiber diet had higher plant-based foods, higher carbs, less animal protein. The high fermented foods diet, because of just the nature of it, they ended up having more animal protein, more sodium. But what was really interesting was they were looking at microbiome diversity and it was only increased in the fermented foods diet, not in the fiber diet. Inflammatory markers were modulated in the fermented foods diet, not the fiber diet. And they were talking about how it seemed to also be, I think, case specific. So basically, like the people in the fiber diet, they experienced an increase in density of the gut bacteria, but not an increase in biodiversity compared to the fermented foods diet, where they did experience increase in biodiversity, but not increase in density. And so they were talking about what we were just talking about now, which was maybe fiber alone wasn't enough to add in those species compared to the fermented foods diet. But they did say that maybe it just needed to be longer. Like I think it was a six-week study. It makes me wonder a lot about how much can you change your diet with, you know, adding in plants compared to if those species are just not there? Yeah, it's, yeah I think it's a really good question. You, know, you got to find the species somewhere and that that's the presumption. On the other hand, it's it's amazing how easily things can get introduced to, into your digestive tract. You know, you, you're on an antibiotic, you wiped out your gut bacteria and you think, oh, I got to go to the store and get probiotics. Your gut is going to repopulate whether you take probiotics or not, just from inhaling and eating and things like that. And so I, I don't longer bother with probiotics at all. Um, but, but, but I think your, your, your point is a good one. I, I do think that fiber is important, but, but what is fiber? Fiber is just a carbohydrate food that you couldn't digest, but the bacteria can. And so there are other carbohydrates as well and sugars, and, and then there are fats and proteins and all of these things kind of have their own ideas about what bacteria should survive. Is there the possibility that some of the health benefits that we see from people on vegan diets is because like it self-selects for people who are suited to that diet? So so basically like the type of people who can thrive on a vegan diet is because they have the gut microbiome to thrive on that diet. So maybe it's not even the foods as much as it's they have a gut microbiome that can be adapted to that. And the reason I bring that up is some people seem to just have such GI distress and they just can't, like they seem like they can't handle high, you know, plant-based diets. And so they go on like a ketogenic diet, like lower fiber, and then they, they seem to finally, you know, that seems to really work for them. Yeah. I just wonder about the role of, I don't know if it's like a chicken or egg question. I guess it does just go back to what are your thoughts on you know, is a person innately suited to a certain diet? No, I think it's like Paris. You get on a plane, you fly overnight and you touch down in Paris. You go to your hotel and you say, is there a restaurant around here? 
And, you know, the next day you're having lunch and you have dinner and you discover that your digestion may not be exactly quite right because you're eating foods that are just different from what you've eaten. And eventually, if you stay there about a week or two, you'll find the foods that agree with you. But when you're eating something new, your digestive tract kind of reacts a little bit funny. So getting out of Paris and going back to Washington, D.C., where I live, when a person goes vegan, they're eating foods that are strange for them. They may have said, well, I normally eat about an eight-ounce steak every day. I need eight ounces of, of beans, and they get gassy from it. And they think, I guess I can't ever have beans. And they, they didn't know how maybe to prepare them. They thought they should be al dente, like crunchy. And, and so anyway, th- th- these are really common issues. And I've never seen anybody unable to adapt. But, but unfortunately, we don't have a culture that guides us to healthy plant-based foods. We all grew up in places like Fargo. And so we learned how to grill a, a burger but we never really learned how to make um, healthy food. So, no, I I don't think there's anybody who can't do it. And and the gut bacteria, gut microbiome that you have, that's like the shirt you're wearing. I mean, it changes. It changes really rapidly. So whatever it is that you have now, you can change it. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. 
It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted. And it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I know you get this question all the time, so I'm hesitant to even ask it, but um, what are your thoughts on the fact that vegans might be lacking in something like B12, for example? And what does that say about is it our natural human diet if it's lacking something that we can't get from food? I know you get this question all the time, so I'm apologizing. <laughs> no, it's, it's a very, very good question. Vitamin B12 is not made by animals. You know, if you eat a goat, the, the goat didn't make B12. <laughs> it's made by bacteria. And historically, people speculate that the traces of bacteria in the soil, on plants, on our fingers, in our mouths, we give you that tiny bit of B12 that you need. And it's made even conceivable that the gut bacteria that you'd make would have made some B12 that you might have even been able to absorb, depending on how you look at these things. Whether that was ever true, those days are definitely gone in our modern hygienic world. So everybody who's on a vegan diet should be supplementing vitamin B12. And that doesn't mean that you're not suited to a plant-based diet. If you, let's say you eat meat all the time and you happen to be on a ship back a couple of centuries ago from England and everybody's dying of scurvy and fast forward, somebody says, you know, meat doesn't have any vitamin C at all. It just doesn't have it. If you're a dog or cat, you could have made vitamin C, but you're not. You're a great ape. You get vitamin C from plants. You're obviously not made to eat meat. So, in your digestive tract, if you don't have fiber in your digestive tract, I wish you all the best because you're going to be miserable. We would like to pretend that we're cats or dogs because being a carnivore is kind of more macho than being a chimpanzee, but we are great apes. And like orangutans and gorillas, chimpanzees and bonobos, our diets are plant-based, either exclusively or largely. And that's the kind of diet that we do best with. So what are the implications of like the intense acidity of our stomach and our longer small intestine compared to the large intestine? Like, I just feel like when I look at the human, it kind of says omnivore to me rather than herbivore. Sure. Well, let's look at what we know versus what we wish were true. Researchers have parsed this out a little bit. And one of the, one of the really cool studies is the Adventist health study. And the reason I like this is that they, they put Seventh-day Adventists under the microscope. It took me a while to figure out why they would pick on Seventh-day Adventists. And the reason is there's a lot of them. They volunteer for research studies, and they are extremely health-conscious people. They are non-smoking, teetotaling people. But they vary in diet. So let's say we think, well, you, you can find some. They're, they're uh, T. 
teachings will say you've got to be health conscious. So you'll find vegans, you'll find ovolacto, you'll find pescatarians who, who don't eat any animal products except for fish. You'll find heavy meat eaters too in that population. And you see this remarkable gradation. Uh, Serena Tonstad in uh, Diabetes Care in 2009 looked at body mass index. And the body mass index, if I remember correctly, in the meat eaters, just th these are health conscious, kind of modest meat eaters, but it's something like 28.8. In, in other words, they were in the overweight range. And then if you went to the people who were sort of un rare meat eaters, less than once a week, they were still overweight, but lower BMI. And then if you looked at people who didn't eat meat at all, except for fish, they were slightly skinnier and then the lacto-ovo-vegetarian skinnier too. But the only group that whose BMI on average was smack in the middle of the healthy BMI range was the people on a completely vegan diet. So the more you get the animal products out of your diet, the better. But the reason that the American Diabetes Association published it was that the diabetes gradient was exactly identical. The people on the meaty diet who were letting meat and gravy and cheese take the place of beans and vegetables and things to a degree, they had by far the highest diabetes prevalence. And the people who were vegans, who apparently never read the Atkins books and stuff because they didn't realize they shouldn't be eating all this carbohydrate. I'm, I'm kidding a little bit. The, the vegans have, I think it was maybe a 2.9, some of that percent prevalence of diabetes in the vegan population. So the more people get away from animal products, the better they do. Now that said, we're no longer in charge of our diets. You buy things at the store and we're not really taught how to do it. So it's good to have some rules of thumb. And the, the rule of thumb is have fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains. And build your diet from however much of those you want. Don't limit carbohydrates. Don't limit calories. Eat what you want of those, but keep oils really low and have some B12 every day. And if you live in North Dakota and it's wintertime, you're probably going to need some vitamin D too, because no matter what your diet is like, you're going to probably run low in D. That's, that's about it. That's really kind of all you need. One more question about the evolution of the species. So we have like, you know, amylase gene, which suggests that we digest starch, but then we also have like lactase gene, which or some people, or gene. I don't know. Is it a gene? Yeah, it is. Yeah. No. So to digest dairy, would that insinuate that we're supposed to be eating dairy? It insinuates that you had a mother and your mother was a mammal and her breasts were hopefully there to nourish you. Now in the 1950s and to some extent today, it was unfashionable to breastfeed your child. But I have to say as a doctor, I believe that breastfeeding is an integral part of reproduction. When you're going to create a baby, give that baby the, the, the nutrition that they need. But, but for all mammals, the, the, there is, in fact, a gene that creates this enzyme called lactase. And like a lot of genes, it, after the age of weaning, it says, son, you've got to make your own way. I'm not going to make any more lactase for you, and you're not going to drink any milk anymore. So for all mammals, including the human mammal, that lactase goes away. And so you're then lactose intolerant. And then if you drink milk later the milk sugar lactose doesn't break apart and bacteria will break it apart and they ferment it and they, you get a bubbly stomach and diarrhea and pain and all this kind of stuff. Unless you happen to be in a culture that started raising cows in Europe or the Middle East and there was a huge genetic selection for people who could have the lactase enzyme persist for a longer period of time. And those people thought of themselves as normal and everybody else is abnormal because everyone else got sick when they would drink milk. Only in the mid-60s was it clear that lactase persistence is due to a peculiar genetic mutation. But that doesn't mean that it's a good idea to drink milk because those people are then 
free of the digestive symptoms that milk causes, but they get all the other problems that milk causes, like acne and hormonal problems and weight gain and everything else. Yeah, that was a a mind-blowing moment for me. And listeners, I really recommend reading The Cheese Trap because it will just blow your mind on cheese. But this idea that maybe not having that lactase gene later could actually be protective because you're not getting some of the problematic problems of actually digesting and breaking down cheese. Specifically, like, was it galactose? Was that the um, the sugar that's created? Yeah, yeah, well, lactose is in milk. Or galactose, the one that started with a G. Exactly. Lactose is a double sugar. And if you could look at it under a super powerful microscope, it's a mixture of galactose and glucose, and they're hooked together. And that's what gives you an upset stomach because bacteria can digest that and they make gas. But the lactase enzyme, when you're a little baby, will break that apart. And so you can then absorb the galactose and the glucose both. But that becomes a problem later on for you. So anyway, there you are. So looking at, so my diet, for example, all whole foods, very low fat, very high carb, but I do have a lot of animal protein, lean animal protein, and I do intermittent fasting. So in that type of diet, and I think a lot of my listeners actually follow a similar diet, like what problems do you see there? I guess from the animal protein, like, is it the IGF-1? Like, Well, I guess, well, there, there are four sets of problems and maybe we don't talk about you for the moment, but when I was a child, I drove a load of cattle to East St. Louis. And before I started worrying about my grandpa's coronary arteries, the, cat, the, the cattle themselves might have been a clue to an intelligent human being that there might be something amiss. And now doctors are not supposed to talk too much about ethics, but the idea of taking, there is no animal more placid and nice than a cow. I mean, they don't borrow money. They don't smoke in your living room. They're perfect. They won't say anything bad about you while they're gone. But all the ones that I drove to St. Louis were hung up by their leg and their slit was their throat was slit by a underpaid person. Their life was sacrificed just to cause coronary artery disease in other people. In some cultures, people take animal suffering seriously. In North Dakota, we didn't. But I, when my grandpa died at 62, I found myself thinking maybe if we had thought a little bit more about what we were doing, and not just them. I mean, we had, I had a shotgun and I killed kind of anybody who would fly overhead. I, I do think that if we have the guts to bring a recognition of the other animals we share this planet with and think about their interests a little bit, we might leave them alone a little bit and, and we would probably do a whole lot better. The second piece of this, apart from the animals, is if anybody believes climate change is not real, I would encourage you to maybe think more about that. You can't be having animal products as part of your diet without having a pretty heavy impact on the environment. And I will raise my hand with a big mea culpa because my family has been busily (laughs) destroying the environment for many generations. But it's good to take that seriously. Then the the third thing that we haven't talked about is, apart from your health, is what is our message to the next generation? Kids growing up in schools today are very often overweight in some cases, insulin resistant, before they get their high school diploma. And they have learned from the TV a lie that a potato caused that, or an apple, or a pear. And they they, they grow up with so much unfortunate nonsense. And then when they get cancer or heart disease, they're told it's genetic. 
or they, they get dragged into all kinds of absurd other directions. And so my point is whether you think about animals or the earth or the next generation that we that we have some responsibility toward, the more we understand that healthy, simple plant-based foods really are an important thing to consider, that's, that's really good. That said, back to your body, if we're on a plant-based diet, many things get better at the same time. Our waistline trims, our heart gets healthier, our insulin resistance diminishes, our cancer rates drop, the likelihood of Alzheimer's diminishes. We're still vulnerable. Things go wrong no matter what. The, the body is not perfectly designed, but that gives us the best shot. No, I'm super glad that you brought all of that up because that's, I know we probably diverge a little bit on the best route to it, but one of the most important things to me is the sustainability of the planet and the environment and ethics. And I just think it's so important. And I think there's so much confusion too out there about the best method to that. And I'm constantly researching and trying to, you know, learn about what that may be. I'm really, really interested in regenerative agriculture, for example. I'm good friends with Rob Wolf, who wrote a book called Sacred Cow. And I, I really like his perspective on everything, but I think it's really confusing. And I think in the end, what we can say is, you know, what everything that you just said, like, I mean, it's a mission to change people's lives, change people's health, support the environment, support the planet. I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. I mean, you're changing so, so many lives, so many. So the last question I actually ask every guest on this show, and it's because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Well, today I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you and to speak to your listeners. And I'm grateful for what you do because you reach a lot of people. You may not see them and you'll never really know who you touch, but you touch many and some people are going to make some changes based on what you've helped them to understand. And you've saved far more lives than you know. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming on my show because I know <laughs> I know it can be, I mean, you're all over the place, so you're probably not nervous, but I know my audience is, you know, a little bit different than the audiences that you speak to. So I really, really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your work. How can listeners best follow everything that you're doing? Um, well, our website is pcrm.org. That stands for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Go to pcrm.org. You'll see recipes. You'll see our menopause studies there. Or my books, Your Body in Balance, and the others are they're on Amazon and online and everything else. But if there is if there is somewhere a library or a bookstore that's still opening its doors these days, I'm sure they'd like to have your patronage. Awesome. Are you currently writing a new book? No, not at the moment, but we're, we are doing studies, quite a number of research studies on the applications of these kinds of diets and, and also studying on ways to make them really as easy as possible for people to adopt and, and that kind of thing. So that, that's a bit of a preoccupation right now. Awesome. Well, that's wonderful. And open door if you ever would like to come back on the show again with your future work. I really appreciate all of it. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.